Our scripture reading today comes from Mark chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 14 and 15. Mark 1, 14 and 15. Uh, we're in the middle of a sermon series on the living hope that is ours through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's a series that's following the general outline laid out by Tim Keller in his newest book, Hope in Times of Fear. Uh, last Sunday we saw that the Christian gospel differs from every other religion and philosophy, those devised by men rather than revealed by God, it differs because it's built around historical events. Jesus died, Jesus was buried, Jesus was raised, and Jesus appeared to many witnesses at many times and in many places, all in accordance with the scriptures. And because these things happened in history, in space, in time, the heart of the gospel is not good advice about what we must do to save ourselves, but rather good news of what has been done by another, by Jesus, to save us from our sins and reconcile us to our Heavenly Father. And this morning we want to look more closely at the substance of the salvation that is ours through Jesus' resurrection from the dead. But as we come to God's word, let's pray to ask for God's help to understand what he's saying to us. Our, our prayer for illumination this morning was written by Ambrose, Bishop of Milan in the fourth century. Would you pray with me? Lord, teach us to seek you and reveal yourself to us as we seek you. For we cannot seek you unless you first teach us and we cannot find you unless you first reveal yourself to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Mark 1, verses 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Praise be to Christ. Kids, y'all can come on up and join me. All right, yeah, sit, sit so you can see me over here this time. Going to have a little bit of time on the whiteboard. I got to make use of it. So, before I get to that, though, let me ask you guys a question. Uh, can, you, can you maybe give me a, a, a couple of answers for this? What does it mean to be a Christian? How, how would you answer that? What does it mean to be a Christian, Leela? To believe that Jesus died on the cross. To believe that Jesus died on the cross. Yeah, that's right. Anybody want to add anything to that? I, I think that's a great answer, Leela. We, we can add maybe a little bit to it, uh, just to expand on some of the, the points you made, like about why Jesus had to die on the cross, things like that. But you, you got the heart of it, to believe in Jesus. To, to be a Christian means that we believe that Jesus is the king, right? He's the king over God's kingdom. It also means we have to admit that we often reject him as king. We, we, we live in our thinking and in our speaking and sometimes in our behavior like we want to be the king, right? We have to admit that as Christians. And as Christians, like Leela said, we believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Our king died for us but now he lives again to be our Savior, right? And as Christians, we rely on the Holy Spirit 
God gave us His Holy Spirit to help us live new lives in His kingdom, lives where we want to obey Jesus. All of that together is what it means to be a Christian. We confess our guilt, we trust in the grace of God that's given to us in Jesus, and, and we seek to obey Him again because He's brought us into His kingdom. He's our King now. But do you and I always live that way? No, I, I don't. When, now, when we become Christians, we want to obey Jesus as our King, and I, I am learning to obey Him more. I do want to stop sinning, but I also find that the older I get, the more and more sin I find inside of me. It, do you think that that's normal? You, you think so? Well, I'm glad to hear that. Uh, and, and I think that uh, the Apostle Paul can actually help us understand something about this, too. Uh, do you guys remember the, the story of Saul who became Paul? Do you remember? So he lived for a, a large part of his life uh, apart from, from God. I mean, he thought that he was loving God, but he didn't really know him. And then one day on the road to Damascus, who did he meet? Well, yeah, the, God the Son. He met Jesus, right? So he came at, at this point in his life to believe in Jesus. He knew that Jesus was the king, and he he repented of his sin and he wanted to, to, he trusted in Jesus and he wanted to live a life following him. And that's what he did. But something really interesting happened in his life. The longer he went in his life, he learned more and more about the goodness of God, the holiness of God. So his, his knowledge about God went up. Like God, he became more beautiful to him. But, but when he looked at himself he began to see more and more uh, sin in himself. Uh, early on in his ministry, he, he refers to himself as the least of the apostles. There, there were a few apostles, and he said, I'm, I'm the least. I was a persecutor of the church. I'm a big sinner. I'm the, I'm the least important of the apostles. But as time went on, he, he knew more and more of the beauty of God and do you know what happened when he saw more and more of the beauty of God? What happened when he saw himself? His knowledge of his own sin just kept going down. Like, sin was a bigger problem than he knew. And so a little later, he refers to himself not only as the least of the apostles, he calls himself the least of the saints. Out of all the Christians in the world, he's the least. He's the smallest. He's the least important. Well, wouldn't you know it, that as more time went on, he got to know God more and more, saw more of his goodness, more of his beauty. But when he looked at himself, what did he see? Well, sin just kept being this, it just kept going deeper. So that by the end of his life, he said he was not just the least of the apostles. He was not just the least of the saints. He was actually the chief of sinners. He said in all the world, he felt like he was the biggest sinner of all. So how could it be that somebody like Paul would just continue to struggle with sin even, even as a Christian? How could it be that somebody like him who continued to struggle with sin would be saved? Well, the answer is Jesus, of course. At every point in his life, Jesus' cross and really the person of Jesus just kept getting bigger and bigger 
and more important to him so that Jesus became, Jesus didn't change, you understand. Jesus was Jesus. He, he's always the same. But Paul began to understand Jesus is a way bigger Savior than he had ever knew. And that's going to be true for you and me. Now, because God is our help, you and I really can change. We really can grow. But we can make progress in becoming more like Jesus in our thinking and in our speaking and in our behavior. But that does not mean that you and I are going to be totally free from sin in this life. And so what I want you guys to do is when you discover that sin is actually a bigger problem in you than you knew, I want you to, to realize that you don't have to believe the lie that struggling with sin means that you really aren't a Christian. I actually want you to do what Christians do, is to admit that sin and keep trusting in the Savior. Keep trusting in Jesus. And he promises that there's going to come a day when he makes it so that you don't have to deal with sin anymore. When, he, when his kingdom comes fully, you won't have to worry about that anymore. But because even today, Jesus has already conquered sin and death for you, that's why we call this good news. Do you believe it? Thanks, guys. You can go back. If you've not already done so, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. We are focusing on those verses there, verses 14 and 15 of Mark chapter 1. Unlike Matthew and Luke, Mark doesn't really give us much of Jesus' backstory. Rather, he just launches immediately into the account of, of Jesus' earthly ministry. And, and really the only preamble of those, those few verses we have there, verses 2 through 8, which give us this brief account of John's ministry. But if you look, or immediately after that, that description of John the Baptist's ministry, we, we have Mark's uh, account of Jesus' baptism by John, then his, his temptation in the wilderness, and then the beginning of his teaching ministry in Galilee. All in, in quick succession, the first half of the, the first chapter. Mark just, just dives right into the story of Jesus' ministry. And it's that, that very brief description of Jesus' initial teaching ministry in Galilee uh, that is going to be our focus this morning. So look again at verses 14 through 15. Mark writes, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So last Sunday, if you remember, we, we heard Paul's own summary of the gospel that he proclaimed. As Sam said in the introduction, Jesus died, Jesus was buried, Jesus was raised, and, and Jesus appeared to many, all in accordance with the scriptures. That was the summary of, of Paul's gospel, the gospel that, that Paul proclaimed, given to us by Paul himself. Well, here we have Mark's summary of the gospel that Jesus proclaimed. He says that Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. So this is the, this is the gospel that Jesus proclaimed. And that gospel can be boiled down to this. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Now, at first, those, those two summaries sound quite Different, But I want to show you this morning that they're not as different 
as they at first appear. The apparent differences are, are something of a historical necessity. Paul is presenting a gospel summary, a, a summation of the gospel that developed only after Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, not many decades after, we saw that last Sunday, the, the church immediately begins confessing that Jesus is the risen Lord. But, but nevertheless, still, Paul is teaching, he is uh, uh, giving us the gospel after Jesus has completed his earthly ministry. Mark, on the other hand, is giving us a summary of Jesus' teaching at the very beginning of his public ministry, years before his death and resurrection. And so Jesus couldn't very well use Paul's summary. Jesus couldn't come into Galilee saying, I died, I was buried, I was raised, I, I appeared to many, because those things hadn't happened yet. And so, what we have to see is that, that Jesus of necessity is going to give us a different summary of the gospel. But, the summary that Jesus gives us is, is really not different than the summary that Paul, or that Paul gives us. Because when Jesus says, the time is fulfilled... The kingdom of God is at hand. He is, in effect, saying the same thing that Paul said when he said all these things happened in accordance with the Scriptures. As we saw last Sunday, when, when Paul says that these things happened in accord with the Scriptures, he, he is saying that, that Jesus' death and, and Jesus' resurrection were the fulfillment of God's plan of redemption. You'll remember that, that no sooner had Adam and Eve eaten of the forbidden fruit, no sooner had, had Adam broken the covenant and brought sin and death into the world, no sooner had, had that rebellion taken place than God made a promise. Even in pronouncing the curse, God promised that he would undo the curse. God promised that he would undo the, the devastating effects of, of Adam's rebellion, that he would reconcile mankind to himself through the seed of a woman, the, the seed that would ultimately crush the serpent's head. And the Old Testament is the story of God's faithfulness to that promise. Everything that we read in the Old Testament is God unfolding the fulfillment of what he had promised to do. But despite God's faithfulness to that promise, the, the promised seed, the, the promised Savior, never actually comes in the Old Testament. The stage is set, but the curtain is drawn before he appears. It is only in the New Testament that we finally meet the promised Savior. It's only in the, the New Testament that we meet Jesus. Jesus is the seed of the woman. Jesus is the promised Savior. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. And that's the point that Paul is making when he says that Jesus' death and resurrection happened in accordance with the Scriptures. He's saying, as, as he does say explicitly elsewhere, all of God's promises are yes and amen in him. He is saying that, that Jesus' death and resurrection are the historical events that fulfilled God's plan. And what I want you to see is that Jesus is saying much the same thing from, from a different perspective when he says the time is fulfilled. 
The time that he is referring to here is, of course, God's time. He is saying that now is the time when God is acting in history to fulfill his promises. Now is the time when everything that God said he was going to do is beginning to be fulfilled. With his advent, with his coming into the world, all of God's promises of of redemption and of restoration are beginning to be fulfilled. Of course, the the fulfillment will be accomplished through his life and through his his death and through his his resurrection, as Paul says. But at this point in the story, at the very beginning of his public ministry, he can't yet point to those things specifically the way that Paul does because they haven't happened yet. They can't be his summation of the gospel because, because he's pointing forward to what he is about to do, what he is about to accomplish. But he is still saying that in him, in his coming, through the life that he is about to live, all of God's promises will be fulfilled. So Paul's summary of the gospel and and Mark's summary of of the gospel that Jesus preached, while apparently different, upon closer examination, are seen to be essentially the same. And what I want us to do this morning is to look more closely at the substance of the salvation that is being promised. I want us to look more closely at the content of this gospel. Because what I want us to see is that Jesus describes the the substance of salvation. He describes the the content of the gospel in terms of the kingdom of God. Again, you see it. Jesus says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. That's how Jesus proclaimed the gospel at the beginning of his ministry. The kingdom of God is at hand. And what this teaches us is that Jesus, through his his death and through his resurrection, brings our future hope of an imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance. He brings that future hope into the present. In him, the kingdom, the promised kingdom, is at hand. And I want us to consider the the significance of that this morning. First, I want us to understand what, what is being promised in the promise of the kingdom. Then I want us to understand how that kingdom is present here and now. And finally, I want us to look more closely at how then we participate in that kingdom, even in the midst of this present evil age. Let's begin with the promise of the kingdom. There's a sense in in which it seems strange to to speak about the promise of the kingdom. It seems strange to to speak of God's kingdom as as something yet to come, as as something future, rather than as something already established. After all, the the scripture continually and and consistently speaks of God as the reigning king of kings. It, It speaks of him as the sovereign Lord over the entire cosmos. Psalm 93 says, the Lord reigns. The psalmist proclaims, your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. And elsewhere, uh, the psalmist says, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. So so from the beginning, from, from before ages began, the Lord was the Lord. He was the king of kings. He was reigning over all. His throne has been established from of old, from eternity Past, from the beginning, from before the beginning, he has ruled over all. And therefore, it can seem strange 
to speak of the promise of the kingdom. It can seem strange to, to think of the kingdom as somehow future. And yet, when we read through the Old Testament, we can't miss it. The, the Old Testament is, is consistently speaking about the promise of the kingdom. It's consistently speaking about the, the kingdom yet to come. The Old Testament prophets regularly spoke of a, of a future kingdom that would be established at the end of history and in the last days. For example, think of those prophecies that we more regularly associate with the Advent season. In Isaiah chapter 9, for example, we read, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there shall be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It's an amazing prophecy. Isaiah is, is clearly speaking of, of a kingdom on earth. This child will sit upon David's throne. But at the same time, he is also clearly speaking of a heavenly kingdom. This king will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is, this is no ordinary king. Of the increase of his government, the prophet says, and of his peace, there will be no end. This is not a, a temporal kingdom reigning for, for one generation his kingdom will be the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. And this kingdom is yet to come. We're told the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Isaiah is looking forward to a kingdom not yet established, but one that will be established by the zeal of the Lord of hosts. We see something similar in Isaiah 11. The prophet writes, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So again, the, uh, the prophet Isaiah is talking about a human king who will sit upon David's throne. But when you, when you read the description of this king's kingdom, uh, you realize immediately that, that his kingdom is otherworldly. That his, his kingdom is a heavenly kingdom. That his kingdom is none other than the kingdom of God. Just listen to the way that the, the prophet goes on to describe this king's kingdom. He says, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, the young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And the language is, is clearly poetic, and there's room for discussion concerning the, the precise meaning and, and significance of the images that the, the prophet is setting before our eyes. But... But the general sense is pretty clear. The prophet is saying that under the rule of this promised king, in his coming kingdom, there will be perfect peace. In fact, Isaiah will go on to say that in this coming kingdom, not, not only will, will uh, creation be at peace with itself, but even disease and death will be finally vanquished, will be finally eradicated 
from the face of the earth. Reflecting on this, Keller puts it this way. He says, the world was created by God to be a place of perfect harmony under his rule. Everything was cohesively woven together with every other part of creation. There was no disharmony between the body or the soul or between our feelings and our conscience. There was no conflict between individuals. There was no conflict between the the genders. The body never became disharmonious with itself. There was nothing of the disintegration of, of disease and aging and death. There was perfect harmony throughout the entire creation. There was no broken relationship of any kind. But sin, Adam's rebellion against God when he ate that forbidden fruit, sin, which is at heart a resistance to God's kingly authority, broke that unity between God and humanity and and between creation. And it led to the breaking of all other relationships, the unraveling of creation. Everything in the world, every aspect of life, because of Adam's sin, is now subject to futility and decay. It's the world that we live in. We live in this this world that has been marred and defiled by sin. But the prophets insist that one day the Lord himself will return to earth to bring all of creation back to flourishing. God's kingly reign will be complete healing of, will bring the complete healing of creation, the the reunification of humanity, the end of, of physical decay and death. That is the promise of the kingdom. One day God will reestablish the, uh, the, the peace that he intended for his creation. One day he will restore all of creation to, to flourishing. One day he will make all things new. As we sing in that familiar Christmas carol, he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. All of creation has been brought under the curse. And through God's work of redemption, all of creation will be made new. That's the promise of the kingdom. That's the substance of the gospel. And we we need to see this. We need to understand that that the gospel is more than the good news of the forgiveness of our sins. It's, It's not less than that. There is no gospel without the forgiveness of our sins. If we remain in our sins, we we remain cut off, alienated from this kingdom. It is through the forgiveness of our sins that we become heirs. But the forgiveness of our sins is that we might be qualified for an inheritance in this coming kingdom. That's what God is doing when he justifies us, when he declares us to be righteous. He is declaring us uh, as having a right to this inheritance. Through Jesus Christ, we become citizens of the kingdom of God. And it is that kingdom that Jesus said is now present in him. And so this is our our second point. This is the second thing that we need to understand. We, We need to understand what does Jesus mean when he says that the kingdom has come in him. When he says that in him the kingdom is at hand. Because I said that that from one perspective, it seems strange to talk about the kingdom of God as as coming. It seems strange to talk about the kingdom of God as as yet future because God is already sovereign. He's already ruling over the entire cosmos. But but hopefully we've seen that, that there's a way of speaking about the future of the kingdom that makes sense. Because now the the earth, the the creation is is under curse, but there's coming a day when his kingdom will be established on earth again as it is in heaven. But... When you think about the coming of the kingdom in that way, when you you think about the coming of the kingdom in terms of of God's rule being established on earth as it is in heaven, 
then it can begin to seem strange to speak about the, the kingdom as present now. Because, I mean, let's be honest, <laughs> it doesn't look that way. The author of Hebrews himself says, we do not yet see all things in submission to him. We do not yet see all things under his rule and authority. We, we don't see the kingdom of God, at least we don't seem to, when we look out the window, when we watch the news. I felt this keenly this past week. Without going into the details, let me just say that, that this past week I encountered situation after situation after situation that was clearly broken. That was clearly not the way that it was supposed to be. And not only that, but, but situations that I couldn't fix. Situations that I could come alongside people and groan with them, but I couldn't put it right. And I'm sure that, that many of you had a similar experience this past week. And if it wasn't your experience this past week, it's an experience that you have had in the not-too-distant past. And it's an experience you will have again in the not-too-distant future. In our call to worship this morning, we, we heard the Lord's promise to be with his people when they pass through the floods and when they pass through the fires. And that is a glorious promise. But it means that as the people of God, we will pass through the floods and we will pass through the fires. It means that, that we will have firsthand experience of the brokenness of this age, the, the futility of life under the curse. That was true for the Old Testament people of God in Isaiah's day, and it's still true for us today. But when we, when we recognize that, we're left wondering, what then does Jesus mean? <laughs> When he says that the kingdom of God is at hand in him. What does it mean to say that the, that the kingdom of God has been inaugurated in his resurrection from the dead? To help us make sense of this way of talking about the kingdom, theologians sometimes refer to the, the presence of the kingdom as already not yet. Maybe that's a phrase you've heard before, but it's, a, it's an important phrase that helps us make sense of our experience here in the present. The kingdom is already present, but it's not yet fully present. It's, it's already here, but it's not yet fully here. And, and there can be no doubt that, that Jesus speaks about the kingdom this way. Jesus speaks about the kingdom as present in him. As, as, as dawning in his first coming. We, we see that here as, as he's preaching. We, we see it actually throughout the Gospels. Remember uh, Jesus' first sermon in his hometown of Nazareth. He's, he's in the synagogue in Nazareth and he takes the scroll again from Isaiah and he reads it and he, he reads these words. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he sits down and he says to those who are gathered, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In me these promises are being fulfilled. So there could be no doubt that, that Jesus claimed to have inaugurated the kingdom of God on earth, that in him the kingdom had come near. But at the same time, Jesus was just as clear that the kingdom had not yet come in its fullness. Jesus taught his disciples to pray 
for the kingdom to come. We, we did that this morning as we used the prayer that he taught his disciples, thy kingdom come. Well, that implies that the kingdom is, is not yet here, at least not in full. We're, we're still praying for its coming. And, and he said in, in Matthew 25 that the, that the kingdom prepared for his disciples would not be given until the last day. And again and again in his parables, he, he stressed the fact that the, that the kingdom here and now was small and even hidden, something like a mustard seed. And so we can say that the kingdom of God is already here because Jesus said it. And we can say that the kingdom of God is not yet here in its fullness because Jesus said it. Jesus is the first fruits of the new creation. He is the first fruits of the, of the creation made new. And that means that he is the first fruits of the coming kingdom of God. And that therefore those who are united to him by faith, those who repent and believe this gospel, they now live with him in the power of the resurrection. Paul says that the same power that, that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is now at work in those who believe. And so if you are here this morning and you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are raised with him and you are in the heavenlies with him. You are in the heavenly kingdom of God with him and yet not fully. Not as it will be in the last day. This present age, this, this time between his first coming and his, his coming again to bring to completion the good work that he has begun, it is a both and age. The kingdom is both present and not present at the same time. It is present really and significantly, and yet not fully and completely. And seeing this, seeing the presence of the kingdom as already not yet, it has profound implications for what it means to live in the kingdom today. What does it mean for us to live in the kingdom? What does it mean for us to be citizens of this kingdom? We've seen that, that we have this future hope, right? We, we saw it in 1 Peter. We saw it again in, in, in 1 Corinthians. We, we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us, a, a salvation ready to be revealed in the last days. That is our, our future hope. But here Jesus is telling us that, that his life, his death, his resurrection has brought that future hope into the present in some real and significant way. That future day has already dawned for those who are united to Christ in his resurrection. As Paul says in his letter to the Colossians, those who have been made alive together with Christ have been delivered from the dominion of darkness and transferred, established as citizens in the kingdom of the beloved Son. We must then account for both the already and the not yet when we're thinking about our lives here and now. If we, if we focus exclusively on the already of the kingdom, we will be dismayed. We will be, we will be dismayed by the persistent and, and seemingly intractable brokenness of this age. If we focus exclusively on the already, we, we will be tempted to lose heart. But it's actually the, the same is true if, if we focus exclusively on the not yet of the kingdom. If we focus exclusively on the, the not yet of kingdom, again, we will be dismayed by the persistent and, and seemingly intractable brokenness of this age because we'll, we'll say, what's the point? There's nothing that we can do about it. Again, we will be tempted to, to lose heart. But if we recognize that the kingdom is present, but yet not fully present, we will be set free to serve our king with joy to serve our King with, with endurance, even in the midst of this present evil age. 
I want you to, to first think about what this means for, for your experience with, with sin. You know, as Sam was saying to the kids, as Christians, we, we continue to, to struggle. We continue to, uh, to, to face the, uh, the temptations of our flesh. We continue, we continue to have them wage war against our souls, Peter says. The, the kingdom is already present, and that means that, that, that we can be set free from the guilt of our sins, and, and have been. We have been justified. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But more than that, more than being set free from simply the, the guilt of our sins, we have also been set free from their dominion. The, the immeasurable greatness of his power is now at work in those who believe. We, we live in the power of his resurrection, and that means that we can expect to see real growth in grace. We, we can expect to be transformed more and more into the image of the likeness of Christ, even here and now. We, we can expect to, to put off the, the passions of our flesh and even put them to death and, and to see significant growth. But the not yet of the kingdom reminds us that that growth will always be imperfect in this life. In this life, we will continue to, to struggle. We will, we will never have complete victory over our sins. And it's vital that we understand that as Christians. Over the years, I have heard countless uh, people uh, confess to me that they were struggling with assurance of their salvation because they were continuing to struggle with sin. They wondered if their, if their continual struggle with sin somehow invalidated their profession of faith. They, they were wondering if their, if their continuing struggle with sin somehow proved that they were not truly believers, that they were not truly born again. I can remember having those conversations with, with some of my mentors when I was younger, going to my youth pastor and saying, hey, listen, they, you know, I, I just, I, I'm, I'm still struggling. This is still true of me. How, how can it be that I'm in Christ if, if I continue to struggle in these ways? And I suspect that every one of you here this morning has had that question weigh upon them at some point or other in their life. And so let me say, I, I don't want to dismiss such questions too quickly. There is value in, in the self-examination that such questions provoke. But when we examine ourselves, we must remember that the ongoing struggle with sin, the, uh, so long as it is a struggle does not invalidate a person's profession of faith. Christians will continue to struggle. That is part of the reality in the not yet kingdom. And we can say that, that yes, we are struggling with sin, but we will not always struggle. Because victory over sin is ultimately his gift to us. And so if you are daily endeavoring in humble reliance upon his grace to, to put those things to death, if you are daily endeavoring in humble reliance upon his grace to, to say no to sin and to walk in righteousness, then that is evidence that he is at work in you. That, that struggle does not invalidate your confession, but it testifies that, that he is at work, but that work is not yet complete. And we need that hope as we struggle after righteousness in this life. 
But it's not only our struggle with sin that is, that is shaped by this already not yet character of the kingdom. I don't have time to, to go into it this morning, but, but it, it struggles our experience with suffering too. We, we've seen this over, the, over the, the last few weeks, have we not? In this age, we continue to suffer. And, and again, people sometimes wonder, does that mean that, that, that God is not being faithful to his promises? Does it mean that, that somehow I'm out of the center of God's will? Not at all. In this age, we will continue to, to struggle. It's what Paul says in, in Romans chapter 8. In this age, we will, we will continue to, to experience uh, all sorts of, of things. We will, ex, uh, we will continue to experience tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and danger and, and sore disease and, and death will be our companions in this age. But what does Paul say? Because the kingdom has come. And because it will one day come in full, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Yes, we will continue to suffer, but the promise of the kingdom means that these things can never separate us from the love of God. He is keeping us by His power. And therefore, these things are actually preparing for us a weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. That's the promise of the kingdom. And so we see that the living in this already not yet kingdom Living in this already not yet kingdom, it, it shapes the, our mindset. It shapes the, the way we think about our present experience. The substance of the gospel is the, the promised kingdom of God. And we already are heirs of that kingdom. We already live in that kingdom. We already live in the power of the resurrection, but not yet fully. And that means that, that while we do not yet fully experience all the blessings of that kingdom... The first fruits that we taste now are the promise of the full harvest. That one day God will bring to completion the good work that he has begun. One day our struggle with sin will be done. One day our, our life and the brokenness of the age will be over. One day all things, including us, will be made new. That day is not yet fully here, but it has dawned. And because it has dawned, we can continue to walk in the power of the resurrection, even here and now, until he brings us to the end of our journey. And because we have that hope, that, that sure and certain hope, that he will bring us all the way home. That's why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let's believe it together. Father God, we, we thank you for this hope. We thank you for this gospel. And we pray, Father, that you would indeed allow these truths to, to shape our hearts that we would know that the kingdom has already dawned, but that it is not yet here fully. Father, so that we would not lose heart, but that we would press on, that we would press on in the hope of this gospel day after day, living to the praise of your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.